Well, let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we finished off last week with verse 6. So today, we're going to look at verses 7 through 10. Let's read those together. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we explore these four verses here today that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds, that you would open up our insight and understanding, and that these uh, verses, as we look at them together, would have an impact in our lives, that they would affect uh, how we think, what we believe, and, and how we act as a result. We ask you to bless this study now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've just come out of the first section where Peter has been talking about the fact that as we separate ourselves from the world, he talks about those who suffer in the flesh. And by that he means that anyone who makes the determination to be a, a sincere, serious disciple of Christ, there's going to be a disconnect between us and the people who are in the world. And we even saw how Peter says, uh, they think it's strange that you no longer run with them. And so there'll be suffering in the flesh as a result of making that decision to follow Christ. Uh, it might affect your, your job, how you progress or whether you progress, how the people around you treat you in every facet of our lives. And probably the most difficult area is for family members who uh, perhaps don't agree with you, they don't embrace uh, the Christian faith the way that you do, or maybe they're from another religious background. And uh, uh, we know that, for example, with uh, Jewish people, traditionally, uh, Jews who have become Christians have been ostracized, cut off from their families, considered as dead. That's suffering in the flesh. And so he's encouraging us to hang in there, to persevere. But now as we get to this part, he says, but the end of all things is at hand. So he's trying to encourage us in a couple of different ways here. One, and he says this in other places within his writings, this is not going to last forever. This is but for a short time. The sufferings of this life are nothing compared to the joys, the glories, the, the blessings of eternity. So he's trying to encourage us, hang in there. This is not going to go on forever. But there's another aspect because he says, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. So here he's encouraging us with the fact that the evil ways of the wicked and the sufferings of the righteous will soon be past. So that's, that's a double encouragement. As we look at the world around us and we see the encroaching darkness, there's encouragement there that this will not last forever, that God has a plan. And he is going to bring that plan to fruition. And that will mean the cessation of evil and wickedness. And it will mean the cessation of suffering for the righteous. The end of all things is at hand, Peter said. 2,000 years ago, oh my goodness, Peter was wrong. Or was he? 
If Peter firmly believed that the end of all things was at hand 2,000 years ago, can you imagine how close we must be now? 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So Peter just solved the problem. It's been 2,000 years, more or less, since he wrote this. And Peter says to God, that's just a couple of days. So when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he's absolutely correct, because he's speaking from God's perspective, not man's. When you're the God of all eternity, and you operate outside the realm of space and time, 2,000 years is a drop in the bucket. Does that mean that Jesus is never going to come? Absolutely not. The end of all things is at hand. Verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slack or slow concerning His promise. What promise is Peter referring to? The promise that He would return. Has God ever broken a promise? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the very embodiment of truth. If He said He's coming back, is He coming back? Absolutely. The Lord is not slack or slow concerning His promise, as some count slackness. Now, again, some, from the human perspective, particularly, uh, Peter talks also in this passage about the mockers, the scoffers, where is the promise of His coming? You Christians have been talking about it for 2,000 years. It hasn't happened yet. Therefore, it probably won't ever happen. That's the attitude of many. As some count slackness, again, from the human perspective, yeah, 2,000 years seems pretty slow. But from the God of all creation, the God of eternity, it's just a couple of days. But here Peter tells us why, if there has been a delay, from the human perspective it would appear that there has been a delay. Why has there been a delay? But is long-suffering, God is long-suffering or patient towards us the human race, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The reason for the delay, if you want to call it a delay, is that God created us to have a love relationship with Him for all eternity. And so, at some point, His very nature demands that there must be judgment. There must be justice. He is a God of justice. Just as he destroyed the world in the days of Noah, the Bible makes it clear there's going to be another point in time very soon. His very nature will require that he judges this world. But in the meantime, his number one priority is to save as many as possible. So the longer he waits, the more children he will have in his eternal kingdom. Therefore, Peter says, in light of this, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Peter says, go and party hardy. Go thou forth and have a good time. No. He says, therefore, be serious. Uh, you could also translate this sober, clear-minded, of sound judgment. Those sound like commodities that perhaps are in short supply today. Soberness, clear-minded, of sound judgment. Now what's the opposite of being sober? It's being intoxicated, is it not? 
We are to avoid becoming intoxicated with the things of this world, both literally and metaphorically. And yet we live in a time when there's a stronger and stronger push to legalize more and more ways of becoming intoxicated. People try to justify the legalization of marijuana by saying, well, it's no worse than alcohol. That's quite debatable, by the way. But just because we have one intoxicating substance that's legal, does that mean we should just keep piling on more and more to make sure that everybody has a great opportunity to become intoxicated? Then what happens is you have no soberness, no, more, no clear-mindedness, no sound judgment. We are to avoid, as believers, becoming intoxicated with the things of this world, both literally and metaphorically. Because we know there are many forms of intoxication. Obviously, drugs, alcohol, illicit sex. I mean, we've got guys like Harvey Weinstein and others now going to sexual rehab. Uh, we used to call that perversion. We used to call that sin. But now we call it, you know, an addiction. Therefore, you need to go to rehab. You know the rehab Harvey Weinstein needs? He needs to get saved. It's the same rehab that every pervert needs, that every addict needs. We're all sinners. Sin is addictive because it, it appeals to our flesh. But all sin is addictive and all sin is destructive. Pornography. Major problem today. And I just read, tragically, not that it's good for anybody to be involved in it, but now they're saying more and more women are getting involved in it, which traditionally, pornography has been more of a men's game. And I guess the ladies are saying, turn about is fair play, we're going to do it too, which all it does is to continue to further corrupt our society. And like every other addictive, sinful activity, it's destructive. It destroys lives, destroys marriages. These are the things that intoxicate and these are the things that we're to avoid. Materialism, entertainment becomes a form of escapism, right? We can escape from the reality, from the drudgeries of everyday life, from the problems if we just immerse ourselves in entertainment, which we certainly have done as a society and as a culture. The amazing thing about the world we're living in today is that because of the global mentality today and the worldwide network, the worldwide web, satellites, cell phones, internet, these things are no longer isolated to one country, one community, one culture. It's becoming a global thing. Go to any third world country and everybody's carrying around their cell phones and everybody's on the internet, watching YouTube and so forth. It's not just America anymore. It's the whole world. And I think that's another reason why we can safely surmise that as Peter said, the end of all things is at hand and we are at the very end of the end. We're right there. And so we know there are many things about this world that are intoxicating. But what does Peter say? Because... The end of all things is at hand. And just because it's been 2,000 years since he said that does not give us an excuse to be lazy, lackadaisical, unconcerned, apathetic. As I've tried to point out, 
we should take it even more seriously now because we can look back over the course of 2,000 years of human history and the history of the church and we can look at the current world situation and say, if Peter believed the end of all things was at hand, Jesus is right at the door. Therefore, Peter says, be serious. Be serious about your faith. Be serious about serving God, following God. And then he says, and watchful in your prayers. Now, I would like to propose to you this morning that being watchful in your prayers means you not only talk to God, that's what prayer is, right? And you not only ask Him for the things that you are concerned about, but things that have to do with you personally, but you listen to what He has to say. Prayer is not just telling Him what you want. It's listening to what He has to say back to you. That's a genuine conversation, is it not? You ever been in a conversation with someone that won't let you get a word in edgewise? No, none of you have been there. <laughs> Sometimes I get on the phone with these customer service people. Sometimes I can't hardly understand them. But they have a script. And so they talk and talk and talk and talk. And I finally have to say, excuse me, can I talk for a minute? Because they won't let you talk. I wonder if God feels that way sometimes. When we're praying and we're talking and we're talking and we're talking and God would like to respond, but He can't get a word in edgewise. Is that a possibility? So, watchful in your prayers, we need to hear what God has to say. In fact, what He has to say is a lot more important than what we have to say. And that our prayers would involve not only our own personal concerns, but they also include other people praying for others, as well as things that are happening in our community, our state, our nation, and the world. And I'm not talking about what we call a shotgun prayer. Oh God, please just bless everybody all over the world. Amen. God, please bless all the missionaries in the world. That's a nice thought. But I call that a shotgun prayer. You're just blasting it out there and hoping something hits. No, pray for specific people in specific situations i believe and i think it's biblical specific prayers get specific answers but being watchful in your prayers i believe encompasses all of these things not just talking but listening not just talking about yourself in fact i believe the majority of our prayer lives should involve not praying for ourselves. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When we are focusing on others and their needs, and that includes praying for them, then God will take care of our needs. When we're so self-absorbed that all we can pray about is our own wants, desires, needs, problems, I don't think that's being watchful in prayer. 1 Peter 5.8, again, quoting from Peter. He says, be sober. There's that word again. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 
Be sober. Be vigilant. Vigilant means keenly watching to detect danger. Danger is lurking out there. Satan walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We need not fear him, but we do need to be watchful. We do need to be alert. Keenly watching to detect danger. Ever awake and alert. Now obviously we have to sleep some physically. We have to get some rest. That's the way we're built. But in terms of our spiritual alertness, we're to be ever awake and alert. One of the biggest blessings I ever got in my life, and I don't she hasn't said anything lately, so maybe it hasn't happened in a long time, but one time my wife told me, you know, after a, a night's sleep, the next day she said, last night you were praying in the Spirit in your sleep. In other words, in tongues. We do believe in that here, by the way. And I thought, that is amazing. That's awesome. I'm asleep and I'm praying in the Spirit. Man, that's encouraging. Because even when we're asleep, God is not. The Holy Spirit is not. And guess who else isn't asleep? The devil. I hope it's happened more than once. But if it only happened once, I still like it. Sleeplessly watchful. Intense, unremitting, wary watchfulness. Now, let's be honest. How many believers do you really think are taking their walk with God, their Christian faith, the whole issue of spiritual warfare, this seriously. I, I suspect many are not. And the evidence of that is, is rampant in the church today. But yet Peter tells us, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and be watchful in your prayers. This is serious business. And whether we are engaged or not, it's still happening. It's still going on. And by not taking heed here to the exhortation of Peter to be serious, to be watchful in your prayers, we're putting ourselves in a very dangerous and vulnerable place. Because if you don't think, when Peter is writing to Christians and he's saying, your adversary, your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What do you think the devil's favorite meal is? Warm, tender believer. Christian under glass. We are prime targets. He's got the unbelievers right where he wants them. They're already on his side. They're already in his pocket. They're already serving his purposes. Who is he most threatened and intimidated by? The children of God. Speaking of being watchful, we all remember the story of Gideon and the 300, right? He starts out with something like, what, 30,000? Then he says, okay, all of you guys are scared, go home. 20,000 out of the 30 went home. <laughs> yeah, I'm scared. You told me I can go, I'm gone. <laughs> then he's down to 10,000. He's facing a minimum of about 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites with now 10,000 men. Those, that sounds like General Custer odds to me. What do you think? So anyway, now he's got 10,000 and God says, wait a minute, that's still too many. You've got to imagine Gideon's going, oy vey! <laughs> We're facing 
more than 10, 15 times the number of men that we have, and that's too many. Yeah, God says we've got to thin the herd. So I want you to take them down here to the watering hole. And um, Gideon took the men down to the water, Judges 7, 5. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men out of 10,000. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink. If you're down on your hands and knees and your face is in the water, you can't see what's going on around you, can you? If the enemy is approaching, you won't know it. Only 300 got scooped up the water in their hands and drank like this so they would be able to be aware and alert. Charles Ryrie says, Evidently the 300 used their hands to bring the water to their mouths while standing upright, just as a dog uses his tongue to bring the water to his mouth. This proved them to be watchful and alert in contrast to those who knelt. So this is a graphic example of being watchful, being alert. You're aware of what's going on around you. You're watchful in your prayers. You're not self-absorbed. And that's what Peter is trying to encourage us with here. Now verse 8. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Above all things. Now Peter's been hitting us with a lot of pretty heavy stuff here, but he says, he lays out here for us the number one priority for all believers everywhere for all time. Above all things. Numero uno in the New Mexican vernacular. What is that number one priority? Have fervent love for one another. In the Greek, you might have guessed this, it's agape. Unconditional love, the kind of love that God demonstrated when He allowed His only Son, Jesus Christ, to be nailed to the cross for our sins. The type of loves that loves without expecting anything in return. Agape. God's love, the highest form of love, self-sacrificial love. And Peter says we're to have fervent agape for one another. Now the word fervent, interesting, comes from the Latin fervens, from ferveo, to be hot, to glow. Hot, boiling, ardent, very warm, earnest, excited, animated, glowing. Just as there's another Greek word for love, it's not used in the New Testament. It's eros. It has to do with carnal love, erotic love, the kind of love that we see all around us today displayed in motion pictures and television and every aspect of life. Eros. Even as eros produces a fervent desire to be with someone for the gratification of the flesh. So the agape that takes root in our hearts by the Spirit of God living and working in us should result in a hot, passionate, unquenchable love for one another. You know what popped into my mind as I was writing this down? Are we there yet? How often do you experience this reaction when you see your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you heated up, boiling over, 
passionate, excited to see them? Or do you try to turn and go the other way and avoid them? And Peter says the reason that this is above all things, this has to be our highest priority as believers. For love will cover over a multitude of sins. And Peter's quoting here from Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife. Boy, there's a lot of that going around today. But love covers all sins. Now, wait a minute. What are we talking about here? We thought that the blood of Christ covered all sins. Yes, that's correct. As it relates to our relationship with God and our eternal destination. Yes, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin so that we can enter into an eternal love relationship with God. But how many of you stopped sinning when you got saved? None of us stopped sinning. We don't want to sin. We try not to sin. But we are still in a fallen state. And it's that battle that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. The old man battling the new man. The flesh versus the spirit. It's something we will strive and contend with for the rest of our earthly days. And so what do we do about that? We know that all we have to do is confess. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's one of my favorite verses. I need that. Lord, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I sinned again today, but thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. However, human beings aren't as forgiving as God, are they? You might know that God has forgiven you, but every indicator is that your brothers and sisters in Christ haven't. And that makes life difficult. I've met so many people through the years who have left the church brokenhearted, discouraged, because they felt like they got nothing but judgment in the church. You see, you won't get judgment in the world because they're encouraged when you sin. It makes them feel better about their sin. Misery loves company. You know, cheers where everybody knows your name, you know? That whole deal. Yeah, we can all cry over our beer together. But you won't get any encouragement in the world to not sin, which is what we are supposed to be all about. Living our lives daily with a goal and the desire not to sin, but knowing that when we do, God's forgiveness is available. So what does Peter mean when he says, have fervent, hot, Boiling over love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. God's forgiveness makes it possible for us to go to heaven, right? But the forgiveness of our brothers and sisters in Christ makes it possible for us to live here on earth. That fervent agape means that we don't get offended every time one of our brothers and sisters in Christ does or says something stupid. Because we do it too, right? None of us are perfect. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But if we're to have peace and harmony and love in the body of Christ, that means because of that fervent 
agape, we can overlook all those little sins. And we can entrust the issue of confession, repentance, forgiveness between that person and God. Right? That's why Peter says above all. Because without that fervent agape, the church can't hang together. Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. Attack from without only makes the church stronger. Attack from within will tear it down. Matthew six fourteen and 15. If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And again, what are we talking about here? You mean I could get unsaved if I'm unforgiving? No, I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying. But if you are not a person who is prone to forgiving others, then you're going to have a break in your relationship with God. God's going to hold you accountable for that unforgiveness. And it's going to put a breach between you and God that's going to affect your relationship with Him. Notice, have fervent love for one another. And this is important. Yes, we're told to love those who persecute us, those who hate us. We're to show the love of God to all men. But our first and highest priority, and just, just like you could use the example of in our, our biological families, our nuclear families, if we go out into the public arena and we're warm and we're friendly and we're nice and we're helpful and we're giving, but we go home and we abuse our wife or our husband, our kids, we're just hypocrites, right? We're fakes, we're phonies. And people will eventually see that. Well, he's a real nice guy in public, but man, he's, he's a tyrant with his own family. That's your real heart. Your real heart is made manifest in the midst of those nearest and dearest to you, your own family. And in the spiritual sense, this is our family. Galatians 6.10 Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now again, we are part of the universal body of Christ. It's a worldwide organism. But in the local context... This is our household of faith right here. And if we cannot, will not, do not love one another fervently and do good to one another, all of our so-called acts of love towards the unbelieving world are hollow, empty, and hypocritical. And those in the world will see that. And so this is our highest priority, first and foremost, even as we should make our highest priority on the earthly plane, the well-being of our own families. In the spiritual plane, this is our family. And our first obligation in terms of agape is to fervently agape one another. And just like I said earlier, when the focus of our prayers is primarily on others and their needs, their problems, their situations, then God comes in like a flood to take care of us. Well, the same thing is true here with this. When we get our priorities in order 
and we really learn to love one another fervently, covering over the multitude of sins that we're all struggle with daily, then the outgrowth of that will be a real, genuine, sincere outreach to the unbelieving world. In my opinion, when unbelievers see how well we treat each other, that will speak louder than how we treat them. Okay, verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, the case has been made, I think, rather effectively that one of the spiritual gifts, and we're going to get into that here in just a moment, would be the gift of hospitality. You've probably known someone like this, or maybe more than one person, that um, no matter what time of day it is, no matter what day it is, their door is always open. Oh, come on in. You want some coffee? Can I fix you something to eat? They never exhibit any stress or strain at unexpected visitation. You know anybody like that? Quite, nobody knows anybody like that? <laughs> That's scary. We need some of those people around to take care of us people that aren't like that. <laughs> now, there are people like that in the body of Christ. That it's a joy for them to entertain. It's never an imposition. Hey, I've got an extra bed. Want to spend the night? Want to stay over? But my point is this. Peter is not addressing just a select group of people. He's addressing the entire body of Christ. He says, be hospitable to one another. Although some believers arguably uh, have what some have called the gift of hospitality, God expects all believers to practice hospitality. How do we get better at something? By practicing, right? Romans 12, 9 through 13. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. We were just having a conversation in the back when we were praying before the service about the fact that we're living now in a, in a world where no one any longer has a sense of good and evil, right and wrong. Everything's subjective. It's very difficult to preach the gospel particularly to this younger generation, the millennials and so forth, who don't believe there is any true right and wrong, any absolute truth. But right here in Romans, Paul says, Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. If there is no good or bad, no right or wrong, how do you cling to anything? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, much of what we've talked about this morning right here in this passage, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, or as the New American Standard Bible says, practice hospitality. The Greek word is phylloxenos. It means literally, and you probably recognize in there the word phileo, which is the Greek word for brotherly love, warm, tender feelings of affection, which we're called to have also, but we're not to stop there. We're to take it to the next level and agape one another. But phylloxenos literally means loving strangers, 
Noah Webster defines hospitality like this. The act or practice of receiving and entertaining strangers or guests without reward or with kind and generous liberality. You know what phrase popped into my mind at this point? Are we there yet? And not only are we called upon to practice hospitality, and man, I'm telling you, that's getting harder and harder in this world we live in today. People are more and more isolated. They're more and more glued to their flat screen TVs and their and their smartphones and their tablets and their iPads. Human contact and interaction has to be at an all-time low. I mean, it, it gets to the point of just being ridiculous. You see people in restaurants and so forth sitting across from one another and they're both texting. I've been guilty of it. I confess. But we are so isolated today from one another makes it all the more of a challenge to fulfill the instructions that Peter is giving us here. And not only are we to practice hospitality, and in a moment we'll talk about the fact that if you practice hospitality, you may find out that you're one of those people that has the gift. A gift is not any good to anybody unless it's utilized, right? Would you do it without grumbling? Oh, man, are you kidding me? Uh, you just about had me convinced that, okay, I guess I need to practice hospitality. Now you tell me I can't grumble? I don't know. That's just over the top. That's too much. So even if or when we do practice hospitality, and we should, if we do it begrudgingly, it's all for naught. Honey, I invited the Johnsons over for dinner on Sunday. Oh, my gosh. I can't stand those people. I don't feel like cooking. I was hoping to relax with a good book. I wanted to watch Oprah's TV special. You know she's going to be the next president, right? Uh-oh. Grumbling. That was the husband speaking to the wife and her response. Now, here's the husband. No way, Jose. I'm watching the NFL playoffs today. Get the picture? Practice hospitality without grumbling. Man, I was going to go to the car show. You know, I was going to go to the RV expo today. Now I got to host these people for lunch. That's grumbling. So we need to work on practicing hospitality and we need to work on doing it without grumbling. You see, again, it all comes down to a ma the matter of is it all about me or is it all about God, and if it's all about God, that means it's also all about God's people, you see? I was just pondering this again yesterday. This is something that I've thought about many times over the years. I've shared it with you guys from time to time, that there's no disconnect between our relationship with God and our relationship with people. I was thinking about some of the guys that have been with me for a long time, like Pastor Ed, like Pastor Dave, different ones. And the fact that they've been so loyal, so dedicated, so committed. Now in today's world, those sound like dirty words. But I guarantee you, they are biblical values and principles. Loyalty, uh, commitment, submission to authority. These are all things that God elevates and promotes and honors. But you know what? 
There's a direct connection between someone's relationship with God and their relationship with human beings. If you have proved yourself to be loyal, committed, dedicated, faithful to me, to this church, then I can guarantee you you're also faithful, loyal, dedicated, and committed to God. But if you're not faithful, loyal, dedicated, and committed to God, then you will not display those characteristics with the human beings around you. If you are rebellious towards human authority, I can guarantee you, you are rebellious to God. You might think you can live your life on two different planes. You cannot. Have you ever seen the cross? The vertical and the horizontal intersect, and they cannot be separated. If you think that you have a wonderful relationship with God and you treat people like garbage, you are deceived. As you do it unto men, I can guarantee you do it unto God. Okay, verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, how many of you, when you got your Christmas present this year, your first thought was, gee, who can I share this with? Who can I give this to? I doubt it. I doubt it. But this is what God says. As each one of you has received a gift. He's speaking here of a spiritual gift. It's the word charis or charisma in the Greek. It's an administration of God's grace, His unmerited favor. His unmerited favor is getting what we don't deserve, right? Charis. The spiritual gifts are given to us so that we can represent God to our brothers and sisters in Christ, ministering His grace to them in a way that's beyond, above and beyond our own natural ability. And by the way, this is the only time that this word is used in the New Testament other than the writings of Paul. Paul uses it several times, numerous times. Peter uses it here, and that's it. But as each one has received a gift, a charis, a charisma, an outpouring of God's grace, but it's not for your own benefit. We'll get to that in a moment. Now this doesn't mean each one has received a gift. It doesn't mean that each believer only gets one gift. What it means is that each believer gets at least one. So nobody in the body of Christ can say, well, I don't have any spiritual gifts. That would be contradicting the Word of God. I can guarantee you, you have at least one. And I also believe that they operate in more than one way. I believe that there are some gifts that are are permanent, positional gifts that you will carry with you throughout your life and others are situational meaning that any point in time in what in some situation that god puts you in he can work through you in any of these gifts you may not be a gifted evangelist like a billy graham or a greg laurie or somebody who year after year you go out you crusade you win people to christ but at any given point in time god can impart to you the gift of evangelism to win someone to christ and you need to believe that So that you won't be sitting there going, I can't witness to this guy. I don't have the gift of evangelism. Wait a minute. Does God want that guy to get saved or that gal to get saved? Yeah. Therefore, he will give you the gift that's needed at the moment. But let's go on. What are some of the gifts? Tongues, interpretation, miracles, healing, faith. I believe one of my gifts is the gift of faith. Therefore, I do things that other people think are crazy. I do things that... Common sense tells you you shouldn't do. But that's the gift of faith. And we need people in the body of Christ with the gift of faith. And we need all the gifts. 
Discernment, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, evangelism, prophecy, teaching, mercy, helps, or serving. All these various gifts. Peter's talking about these gifts. He says, as each one has received a gift, what are you supposed to do with it? Hide it under a bushel. No. Use it to minister to one another. Minister to one another. The gifts of the Spirit are not given by God. And this is where a lot of people get confused. Particularly within the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. They view these as some kind of spiritual candy. Dessert. For their own benefit. For their own enjoyment. The gifts of the Spirit are not given by God to us for self-gratification. To make us feel better about ourselves. To make us appear to be more spiritual. They're given so that we can effectively serve one another. The word minister here comes from the Greek word diakonuntas, which means to serve. The, the English word deacon, the diaconate. I used to go to a Baptist church where they had a diaconate. The deacons actually ran the church, which is not really biblical in my opinion, but that's where we get the word. A deacon is a minister to serve. And by the way, this shouldn't be a problem if we're loving one another fervently. It should just come naturally that we would use our gifts to minister to one another. Let me make a few points here as we get ready to close. You might say, well, I don't know what my gifts are. How am I supposed to use them? Well, let me point out something. If you go beyond just sitting and listening to doing and serving, guess what? You'll find out what your gifts are. All believers are called to pray for one another. Would you agree with that? Okay. In the process of doing that, some will discover that they have the gift of healing or a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. I've experienced so many times in praying for people that the Holy Spirit speaks things to my heart and to my mind pertaining to that person that I did not know, but they are accurate because the Holy Spirit is working in me and through me. But if I had not been praying for them, that would not have happened. So step out in faith. Take advantage of the opportunities that God gives you to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't mean just at a distance. I mean up close and personal. Pray for one another. Hold hands. Put your hands on however you want to do it. But pray for one another. And as you do that, spiritual gifts begin to emerge. All believers are called to witness, to testify, to share their faith. And in the process of that, would you agree with that? Every believer should be able to give an account for the hope that is within them, right? All believers, God expects us to share our faith. In the, pa- in the course, in the process of doing that, guess what? Some are going to discover that they have the gift of evangelism. Now others, you may never experience in this life leading anyone to Christ, but you won't know if you could have unless you try. But even if you don't, You don't know how many you're going to see in heaven that are going to say, you know, when you shared your faith with me, I wasn't ready that day. But six months later, I accepted Christ. So we don't do it based upon what we see. We do it out of obedience to God, trusting Him for the outcome. But then you may discover, this is crazy. Everybody I witness to gets saved. Well, looks like you might have the gift of evangelism. But you won't know. Unless you try. All believers are called to, as we pointed out today, practice hospitality. In the process of doing that, some will discover that they have the gift of hospitality and you will be fervent, you'll be on fire, 
you'll be boiling over. You can't wait for the next person to show up at your door so you can make them lunch. Might be me. So, you say, I don't know what my gifts are. You're not going to find out sitting there in that chair. You're going to find out by stepping out in faith. Teach Sunday school. Help with the cleaning in the church. PowerPoint was discussed today. Sign up for that, for the sound crew, to be an usher, to be a greeter, security. Lead a home fellowship group. And not just within the church, although I think that's an important area to plug in and to get involved. We've pointed out today our first priority is to one another in the body of Christ. But even in your workplace, most people will not turn down an offer of prayer. Did you know that? Some will. The the particularly nasty ones. But most people, even if they're not a believer, and you're aware of a situation in their life that could certainly use some prayer, and you say to them, "Could I? would you mind if I prayed for you? Oh, no, please do. How many have experienced that? So, there are many ways, many opportunities, but they all involve stepping out, engaging, getting involved. If you're not willing to step out and minister to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ, it really doesn't matter what gifts you have. Some people like to wear their spiritual gifts as a merit badge. It doesn't matter if you're not going to use them. They're not for you, they're for others. So, you know, unless you're willing to step out in faith and say, God, use me, show me. I want to be used by you. I want to use my gift or gifts to serve others. If you're not willing to do that, then don't even, just forget it. But I don't think that would be a responsible approach to you. In fact, I know it's not, because what does Peter say next? As good stewards. A steward. What is a steward? A steward is one who is given oversight of the estate, the household, the resources, the possessions of another. That was the job of a steward. The one that gives the steward that responsibility is known as the master, the head of the household. Do we have a master? He is the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and we are his stewards. He has entrusted to us his resources. The spiritual gifts God gives us are actually his. It's his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his agape love. And a good steward takes his or her master's resources and uses them wisely multiplying that which has been entrusted to him or to her. We know the parable of the talents, right? One guy got ten, one guy got five, one guy got one. The guy that got ten multiplied his. The guy that got five multiplied his. The guy that got one, who you would have think would have been the most motivated of all, well, I only got one, I got to get to work. What did he do? He buried it, right? And it didn't go well for him in the end, did it? Because he didn't, he wasn't a good steward of his master's resources. A good steward takes his or her master's resources, uses them wisely, multiplying them. A bad steward fails to make good use of those resources, thereby, and this is our word so far of the new year, thereby squandering and diminishing them. When we fail to utilize the resources God has given us, and specifically today we're talking about spiritual gifts, we are squandering them and diminishing them. Finally, good stewards of what? 
The manifold grace of God. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are. They're gracelets, outpourings of God's grace. The manifold grace of God is that grace which has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ, His Son, and which we express to one another through the exercise of the spiritual gifts that He's given us. And just because it's a gift doesn't mean that there is no effort required on our part. There are people who pursue athletics. The majority will never make it to the professional level. But even the gifted athletes have to train, do they not? You could be a gifted athlete, but if you're not disciplined, if you don't train, you will probably never ever see your full potential realized. Same thing goes for musicians. Gifted musicians. You know, bad musicians practice, and they don't get much better. But gifted musicians still have to practice. Craftsmen must ply their trade often for many years in order to achieve their maximum potential. You know, you started out as a young boy building birdhouses and now you build mansions. How did you get there? Through training, through practice. So God gives you a gift, but it comes in its raw form. I experienced that in my early years as a pastor. I started off pretty much just transcribing Chuck Smith tapes and reading them off verbatim. I mean, it sounded great when Chuck said it. It wasn't that great when I did it. But I kept doing it. And there came a point where just something clicked inside of me and I began to really teach from my own heart. And my gift began to develop and to begin to grow. Some of you would probably take issue with that. I'd like to think it's gotten better and better over the years. But that's true of anything in life. Gift or no gift. The way we get better at anything in life is by doing it over and over and over. Well, have you ever won anyone to Christ? No. How many times have you witnessed? Oh, two or three. Come back and talk to me when you've witnessed to several hundred people. And you know what? Even then, if none of them received Christ, you've planted seeds. That's our job, to plant seeds. Sometimes we'll get to reap. Sometimes we'll get to harvest. But even if all we do is plant seeds, that is an extremely worthwhile endeavor. Would you agree? Peter says the end of all things is at hand. And so God says it's time to get serious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. It is amazing to me, and I suspect to everyone here today, how much is packed into every verse in your word. Lord, it's so rich, it's so deep, it's so wonderful. It is our spiritual food. It is our guiding light. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, help us to stay on that path that you have set before us. Help us to be serious. Lord, help us to not be intoxicated by the things of this world so that we can be sober, we can be clear-minded, we can exercise sound judgment. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, God, that even though we still sin every day, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you for the agape love that you've imparted to our hearts that we might cover over one another's shortcomings, failings, 
inadequacies, yes, our sins. Lord, we all sin in many ways, not because we want to. We want to be like Jesus. But we ask you to help us to love one another fervently and that those looking on would see that love and want to be part of our family, God's eternal family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.